0: Talked about last week how uh, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and of course that was a very special uh, you know moment in the Lord's life because he he made a decision in the garden and again uh, I don't want to just assume that everybody is familiar with uh, the whole incident itself but not to also r- sort of completely revisit where we bit where we were at last week but suffice to say that there was this moment where Jesus makes a decision and he has this uh, special time of prayer where uh, he, he really lays his heart out to the Father. And uh, three times he says, Father, if it's possible to take this cup, this cup of suffering, we talked about, though, what it, what it meant, far more expansive than just physical suffering. He says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And, of course, he prayed this prayer three times. He had asked his disciples to, to just be with him, the three of them in particular. I call them the sleepy three, James, John, and Peter. Um, of course, each time he came after praying, they were sleeping. And he had an exchange with them, and we talked about that last week. But a lot of times we forget that the places that we're reading about in the scriptures are really real places. They're places that you can actually walk to and see today. And these things actually happened. They, they occur in geographical locales that um, some of us have actually had the privilege of being able to go and see with our own eyes. We may not be able to see everything exactly how it was 2,000 years ago, but we can see remnants of it, and it's pretty amazing. Last week, we talked about the Garden of Gethsemane. We said that really it wasn't like a garden per se, although the way it is now, it looks like it's, you know, because it's so well kept. But we talked about how the garden was really a grove of olive trees and that Jesus and his disciples had a particular place that they would go to in in that grove. And it was some place they went to on that special night as well, that night that would change everything. Uh, But also it it was, in some ways, one of the most um, difficult evenings of the life. That Jesus, Jesus' entire life. I mean, some really awful things happened there too. But having said that, I w- we were talking about it, and uh, we were just talking about uh, maybe giving people a little bit of an idea, just from a visual standpoint, of what that looks like. So, just going to real quickly, put up some things to sort of give us a visual context for what we're talking about. Now, this is from the perspective of the Mount of Olives, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. You can go there today. You look, if you look, you'll see now it's this, the city of Jerusalem looks direct, you look directly down on the city of Jerusalem. And one of the things you'll notice, you can still see the remnants of ancient times with the wall itself. Now, of course, it's been rebuilt. It's it's a very unique city. This uh, convergence of old and new in in dramatic ways, representing in some ways the the pulse of our world's cultures that is somewhat, at some level, collide here in this uh, city which may be thought of in some ways as the center of our world in some ways. And uh, certainly it's where the most important events in the history of humankind took place when we talk about the life of Christ. Now, so this is from the perspective of the Mount of Olives. If one would have come out of the city, the gates, which is what Jesus would have done on that night, you would come out of the city gates and you would begin to wind down what is now a a trail or path that leads to the Kidron Valley then out of the Kidron Valley where the Brook of the Kidron would have been, and you can still walk this path somewhat today, at least drive through it and walk it and see it, um, you would come up to the Mount of Olives. Now this is the picture from Jerusalem facing the Mount of Olives, this next piece. I'll put that up. And you can get a different person. So you're looking from Jerusalem into the direction of the Mount of Olives. If you were to go into the Mount of Olives, again, even today, you would come to a place that, that is called you know, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it, it's, you'll see olive trees there, all right? Um these olive trees are amazing trees. Uh, some of them go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, a lot of those trees have been cut down from the time of Christ, but some of them remain, or at least some of them have connections that go back very, in very distant time. And so you get an idea. This is what we're kind of talking about when we're talking about the garden, the olive garden. And of course, with this last shot, it gives us an even more sort of uh, kept now environment because it's a tourist attraction as well. But you get a picture of, of sort of where those trees would have, would have been when Jesus and his disciples were going again, it was nighttime. Uh, there are no light, there were no lights but beyond moonlight uh, there's nothing it was very difficult to see and if any of you have ever been in the wilderness, uh, you 'll realize that uh, when it 's dark enough sometimes and then you get under a canopy of trees it 's even darker so it's not, it wouldn't have been that easy. The point is it makes total sense why they needed Judas to lead them to Jesus, bearing torches because you would have never been able to find Jesus and the disciples uh, apart from having some type of of lighting. It was just too dark. Keeping that in mind, we talked about, and that brings us really to this uh, 47th verse here, because it says that while he was still speaking, and again, I think it's important to remember that uh, there had been a sheer delight on the part of Caiaphas, the high priest, and the other temple authorities, uh, when they found out of Judas's desire to betray Jesus to them. We talked about this in depth a few weeks back, but they had, there had been this huge conflict going on between Jesus and the Pharisees, and, and particularly the temple authorities, though, in, in this case. And they had wanted to apprehend Jesus, but it was Passover time. And they were really concerned because it was quite a following that Jesus had. And one of the things we were concerned about is if they were to do it in a public fashion in the middle of the day, uh, that they would, it would create a riot. There, there would be people who would just uh, uh, rise up against them. And they were very concerned about it because they had this fragile again, I'm just trying to set this up. They had a fragile peace that they had settled into with Rome. Rome had kind of given them some degree of autonomy that was different than a lot of other uh, nations that had been subjected underneath Roman rule. Uh, Rome had agreed to let uh, the Jewish people uh, have um, their, their sort of own way of running Jerusalem. They had to pay taxes, of course, but as long as they kept things peaceful, and did not have civil unrest and kept the zealots under control because there was a group of people, um, one of whom, by the way, was a follower of Jesus. He's called the zealot. It was a part, there was a group of people who were advocating a, a overthrow, physical overthrow of Rome and revolution. And ultimately, that would occur some, you know, in AD 70. There was going to be this mighty conflict. But having said that they wanted to arrest Jesus but they couldn't do it in public they were afraid that it would create a riot so when Judas comes up with this offer of I will take you to him I will basically sell him for a paltry amount of money it wasn't even it makes it appear it wasn't even the money it was something else happening here I'll show you exactly where he is I'll lead you to him you give me you, you can bring your guards and your hired hands and I'll I'll lead you I know where he's going to be okay now that is so and when we come to this 47th verse here, it says, while he was still speaking. Now, to appreciate that phrase, while he was still speaking, we have to go back to what was said in the two verses prior. Just put this up real quick. He is referring to, he says, but look, the time has come for the Son of Man to be, you know, delivered in the hand of sinners. So he says, rise up. He tells his disciples, remember that James and Peter and John had fallen asleep. He says, get up. The moment is now. Rise up. Arise. The betrayer even now is at hand. He could, Jesus could see the flicker of Judas's torch. Now that means that while Jesus was praying, and what we read, when we read about the prayer of Jesus in the garden, and how these incidents were taking place, when he tells the eight of them uh, to stay at the front entrance of the garden, he takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further into the garden, and then he he himself it says goes a stone's throw further to pray by himself to the Father about what he's about to walk into. The, the cross is the, right ahead of him. He sees where things are going. He knows what's ahead. Everything that ha- he has been moving towards has brought him to this place, but he doesn't want to do it. He, it. It's not his desire to suffer and to feel that separation and the weight. If he can avoid it, he will. There is no other way, though, and he submits himself. Again, while this is all happening, you've got to understand that in Jerusalem, if we were watching it from a visual standpoint, while the prayer exchange is happening with Jesus in the garden, Judas has begun to lead a group, a band of, of, of thugs, if you will, and soldiers and guards through the streets of Jerusalem, out of the city streets. You, if you were watching from the Mount of Olives, you would begin to see something of uh, flickering lights moving down the serpentine path into the key drone and then slowly making their way up. Of course, they were coming to apprehend Jesus, and Judas was leading them exactly to where they were. By the time Jesus is exactly done with his third exchange with the disciples, he says to them, rise up now, for my betrayer is even now at hand. In that exact moment, it's done. The timing is right there. And then we're told in verse 48 that Judas makes his way towards Jesus because he knew where he was going to be. And actually, it's verse 47. And it says, behold, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude. And they had swords and they had clubs. So they came armed. They came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And it says, now he, he, his betrayer had given them a sign. And his sign was this, that whomever I kiss, he is the one. Because it was dark, remember? And Judas tells them, in the midst, when I get there, this is what I'm going to do. The one that I walk up to and kiss in the darkness this is the one, apprehend him, it will be Jesus. And so he says here that immediately he went up to Jesus and he said to him with a kind of morbid audacity, and many have lamented what may be the most saddening exchange in human history because if we think about the lovely, beautiful one, then this makes these words even more significant for he says, greetings, rabbi, and he kisses him in the eastern fashion on his cheeks and in so doing he identifies jesus as the one they immediately come but look what jesus says first jesus said to him friend friend why have you come and there must have been this moment of exchange because jesus loved judas judas had walked with jesus he had okay something awful had happened i mean Something had happened. Clearly, Judas had gone off the edge. Listen, people do that. We know that there were other spiritual dynamics associated with this. The Bible says that hell had gripped the heart of Judas, that somewhere along the way he had opened up his heart to, to things that pulled him away from Jesus at such a profound level that in his twisted mind, and many have speculated as to how and why he would do such a thing, suffice to say, now under the sway of an entirely different force, what maybe had started as an, as, a, as a grievance that he had allowed to fester in his own heart had turned into a, a, a kind of cavern of of disillusionment with jesus that ultimately motivates him to do a deed that would have been unthinkable and as he looks in the eyes of jesus jesus responds to his kind of mocked greeting greetings rabbi with friend and i think that it was a true word it was meant to penetrate the man at a very deep level friend why are you here and and then in that moment um it says then they came and, and as he says that they laid hands on jesus but there was such a, a again, it's so hard to capture it in the words because you've got to read this with the energy of the moment. Because it says all these things happen in rapid fire sequence. Judas walks up and he, he kisses Jesus. He says, Greetings, Rabbi. Jesus says, Why have you friend? Why have you come? Then they've all rushed to Jesus, towards Jesus, as they're rushing towards Jesus. Now Peter is awake. And the other, and he we're told here, in fact, in, in this account, it just doesn't say his who who it was that swings this sword. But in John's account, thankfully, we know a name. And we know that it was Peter who pulls out the sword. And Peter was armed himself. Peter pulls out the sword, and the Bible says that he, in the, in the middle of this, as they move to seize Jesus, Peter evidently jumps in front, and he swings his sword. And when he swings, by the way, it, it says that he, we're told here, he cuts off the ear of one of the servants, or he cuts the ear. He slices the ear. Let me, let me just point out, he wasn't that good of an aim. He wasn't aiming to get the ear. <laughs> All right. Let's just let's just really make that clear. That wasn't like, oh, what, what amazing precision. I like, no, that was like, <laughs> he was swinging with an entirely different motive. He says, "Remember what he had said to Jesus. I will never, I will never deny. I'm willing to die for you." And you know what? He was. In that moment, he he goes. He goes. He takes his sword. And he's going. He is going to defend Jesus. That's what he does. And and it's all about to break out. Everybody's beginning to move. Peter swings. Jesus, if he doesn't stop it right here, it's all going to melt. He says, stop. He tells him, stop. And And his focus is on Peter. Peter, Peter, put the sword away. And then he says a profound thing. He says, do you not know that those who live by the sword will die by the sword? Listen to me right now. You are about to do something that is just completely out of harmony with everything that is going on. Think about it. You, in your zeal, you are willing to kill a man. And the very thing that I have come to do is give life. Stop it. Put the sword away. This is not my way. Now, you know what's interesting is remember I told you that the disciples, look. many of them were following Jesus. Many people were following Jesus because they believed that he had power. And they had seen him do miracles and heal. And so the idea was that if he was truly Messiah, that he would do something. He would be able to lead Israel to a place of prominence. That he could, he would harness this power and lead them in some type of a, of a revolutionary overthrow of Roman oppression, and Israel, their kingdom would be restored, and they would go from the bottom the, to the head, which was the promise that was given to them to be the head of the nations. And so here, here, this belief was always there. I'm telling you, it was, even, it was clearly in one of Jesus' disciples who had been part of a zealot party that had openly advocated opposing Rome with violence. But there was also, we know, a mentality that they all shared about, really, Jesus and the establishing of an earthly kingdom. Here's why, and this is only, we're going to take a quick movement off here. Because we know that on the other side of the cross and on the other side of the resurrection, prior to the ascension of Christ, Jesus has an exchange with the disciples. And one of the things that they say reveals their heart. Even after the cross and even after the resurrection, Look what their questioning is to Jesus. And I put this in there in the third parallel paragraph there, in Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, look at this. Again, after the cross, after the resurrection, Lord, Lord, okay, okay, we we knew we believed in you, and now you've shown us who you are. Okay, is this the time? Is this when we're going to do it? Is this when it's going to happen? Is this, look at He says, is this the time that you've come for to free Israel and to what? Restore the kingdom. Even after the cross and the resurrection, they're still thinking earthly kingdom, national power. This is, this is in their mind. You've got the power. This is going to happen, right? And Jesus says to them, you, have, you actually have misunderstood what I have come to do, and you have no idea of the panoramic working of God. Look what he says. He says, he replied, the Father alone, listen, has the authority to set the dates and times. So Jesus peers into the future and says, those dates and, and times are set, but not for this time. He says, and they are not for you to know, but you will. But let me tell you about something that will happen. Listen to me. Jesus says, what is going to happen, you're asking about power and setting up a kingdom and nation and power and political stuff and societal upheaval. He goes, but I'm going to tell you, the power that I'm going to give you is for an entirely different purpose. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And by the way, for the church for all time, this is these words are so meaningful. Listen, people can debate what, what followers of Jesus are supposed to do. And clearly, there are many things we've been asked to do on, on, in the name of Christ. There are many things that characterize um, Christ's desire for us as, as the church collectively. I'm talking about people who follow him but never for, let us forget what his words were because these words set very clearly what he said. The purpose of my power is to do one thing in terms of, of what I want you to do for me. He could have said anything. He could have given them any mission statement he wanted to. Look what he says. He says, and you will be my witnesses. Listen, what I want you to do is I want you to tell people about me everywhere. I want you to start in Jerusalem. Then I want want you to start in your closest circles. Then I want you to go to Judea even a little bit further. Then I want you to go even further. Samaria cross-culturally share this message and then I want you to go to the uttermost parts of the world listen, what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to tell people everywhere about who I am what I what I have done and what I can do in people's life, The death win- does not win life wins, going back to the most basic fundamental aspects of our faith, let people know that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have life evermore both in this life and the life to come let them know that someone paid a price that we could never pay and I have paid that price and I have paved the way for possible that people can find and be healed and have eyes open and lives changed. preach this teach this live this share this tell it to your world that's what Jesus said and so I will say, say this ours is a telling faith I don't mean telling from a standpoint of arrogance or or um, you know here's you know laying it on people with the heavy but to be a simple witness At times, listen, loved ones, if we're gonna follow Christ, there has to be moments where we take risks to step forward and to say, I am one of his. I follow him. And I wanna tell you about something that has radically altered my life and changed my life. That has to be part of why we do this. Jesus lays it at the foundation stone. Now, go all the way back to our passage. Peter finishes swinging his sword. Everything's about to break out. Jesus stops it. And I think when he says the word, stop, I think everybody pulls back. Um, we know that Jesus did a, a unique miracle right there. It says that he he performed oh, microsurgery. It doesn't say that, but it's kind of like a, a healing of the guy's ear. We actually know his name. He must have become a believer. His name was Malchus. The Bible rarely gives you a specific name, but we're given one later on in the other Gospels. And it's fascinating because it's like, in, even in this moment, the tenderness of Christ is evident. And it must have been with something because Jesus then turns to Peter and he says, You don't listen. I'm put the sword away, put it away. You don't get, do you understand? Peter, he says, This he says, Don't you understand? Like, if I need somebody to defend me with a sword, he goes, Listen, if I wanted to, didn't you understand this? I, it, these are his words. I could, I could, I could, even at this very moment, I'm telling you. Pray to my Father and would not he send legions of angels down? Listen, there'd be power like no one's ever seen. Listen, this is not about that. Put the sword away. My zealous, loyal, misdirected friend who with sleepy eyes just a few minutes ago. You know what? <laughs> Put the sword away and let this be what it is meant to be so the scriptures may be fulfilled. I have made the decision. It is the will of the Father and I will walk into this moment and I don't need your protection, my friend. Put the sword away. now, that got me thinking. I'm going to suggest, I'm going to just put a couple of things on the board here. And by the way, I'll take Peter's blundering zeal over Judas' kiss any day of the week. But while seeking to live, and this is for all of us, especially for those of us who've made a decision to follow Christ, while seeking to passionately devo- you know, be devoted to Jesus, right? We need to guard against also, and I think it's pretty clear in Peter's case, um, being overly zealous. And, I, and I'm trying to advocate here, and I hope we see it is two things. One, I don't believe that Christ ever wanted anything from us other than devotion. I think he loved, he loved Peter's heart. There's no question about it. Because you want to know about Peter? He may have been weak, he may have failed at times, and he may have blown things up, but you know what? He cared. He cared. And in his own way, he did what he, th- what he knew to do. Because you know what? When, when Peter got, his interpretation of courage was to be physical. That's how he understood it. By the time Jesus is done with him, he's going to understand a whole different kind of courage. But that's what he knew. He was a man of his hands, and he worked, and he was a a fighter at heart, and he had a real loyalty and love, but he didn't know himself. We're going to look at that in weeks ahead. We're going to learn from him and how Jesus deals with him. At the same time, you know, he was so passionate about Christ, but he was also completely misdirected in his zeal. And I think it's, you know, you know what zeal is? I heard somebody t- say, a teacher taught me a long time ago, because I was going, what is zeal? What does that mean? You know, because it says the zeal of, the zeal of Christ, and you know, it consumed him. You know, people talked about Jesus as a zealous man. What is it? What is zeal? Some people called it, the man called it that I remember hearing, he said, zeal is love ablaze. Zeal is love on fire. And I thought, man, you know, God wants us to love him. There's something about passion. There's something about uh, a heart that really is seeking after God that is not just going through the religious motions, doing the duties that we do, but really pursuing the Lord with a degree of intention and passion. Because you know what? Jesus lived with passion. We, if we're going to follow him, we need to follow him at more than just a cerebral level. On the other hand, I think sometimes, as we see in the case here with Peter, it is possible to be so zealous that we completely miss the heart of God. The irony, of course, right, is Peter is thinking, I'm defending Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you are doing the exact opposite of what I want you to do in this moment. I'm about giving my life. Here's the irony. You are prepared to take life in this moment. And you tried. And here I am about to give my life away so that others may live. You are out of harmony with what I'm trying to do, what I've come to do. It's sort of like he's reminding him of this. And again, it's, it, it, how many people, I'll say this, I know the Lord wants us to love him. I know the Lord doesn't want us to be ashamed of him. And I know the Lord doesn't want us to have an apathetic kind of uh, casual approach to following him. I get all of that, and, and I understand that. And at the same time, there's been an enormous amount of damage done by people like, he, I'll say it, like, like us, like me, anyone. They're, we're capable in our zeal, misdirected zeal, just like Peter's. We are capable of actually hurting other people even as we're trying to to get them to open up their hearts to Christ. We can be out of harmony at times with the very spirit of the one that we seek to represent. That's why the Bible tells us when we speak truth, speak it in love. Ask God for wisdom, discernment, timing. There's a time for things. There's a time to be, listen, yes, there is even a time to be silent, to be still, to seek to understand. But there's also, loved ones, a time to speak up and a time to step forward. But having brought this back again, the second piece here, i want to suggest something else. That simple obedience is sometimes more meaningful and better than reckless loyalty. I think it really shows up here. Let me try to articulate what I mean. Here's the irony. We're not even at the point of, we haven't even looked at Peter's fail, real failure yet. That's ahead. His denial of Christ is going to be a stunning self-revelation of his own weakness. But what, I was looking at this, you know, think about it. Last week, we talked about this. One of the rare times in all the Bible that I can see in the entire Bible, and certainly in the Gospels, we're talking about the life of Christ, where Jesus ever asks anybody to do anything for him. I mean, it's so rare that Jesus had this level where he would say, if it's possible, look, he says, remember, he says, the eight of you stay here. Peter, you, uh, James, John, come with me. I'm gonna, I want you to come with me. Now, listen, I'm going to go and I'm pray a little bit further over there. I have things to do that, that I, don't, I don't think you're going to understand, nor do I expect you to. But what I would need you to do is can you watch with me? Can you just be present? I need you to do that. It would mean a great, listen, it would mean, it says that he, Jesus was sorrowful. It would mean a great deal to me to have you here, just present. Wow. That level of vulnerability. So what Jesus really needed was for them just to be there, in the simple obedience of alertness and watchfulness. And you know what? They slept on it. They fell asleep. So when he comes back, they're sleeping. So here's the thing. This is what it st- caught me. Peter shows up when they come to get Jesus. He swings his sword. He shows up when it doesn't matter. But when it mattered, he was sleeping. And, it, and you know what? Sometimes we, get, we show up, and he's showing up at the wrong time. It's like, okay, thank you for showing up. You completely missed the moment that I wanted you to show up. Because what I really needed from you was not this reckless, sword toting vengeance in defense of me. What I needed, you know what I really needed from you? It was a few, minutes ba- about a few minutes back there when I was praying for you, praying, and I was trying to fight this thing through, and I had asked you, do you remember that? I just basically said, can you just be here with me? That's when I needed you most. And again, it's not the flashy stuff. It's not the, the emotional outbursts. It's the everyday simple willingness to, to submit our lives to Christ in ways that most people won't notice. It's just staying awake when he needs us to stay awake. It's being open. It's being available. It's being consistent. It's, it's being a disciple of Jesus and hearing, the heart of, hearing his heart in a way that allows us to move in harmony with him through the days of our lives. So so that, listen, so that we respond and react in ways that are in harmony with him because we have spent time with him in the humble place. Lastly, before I throw any stones, I'll say this, that if I'm honest, there is a a Judas and a Peter lurking in, in here as well. There's a part of me, and if any true follower of the Lord will say this, there's a part of us that is capable of both betraying and denying Jesus. listen, we too can and I am sure have at times broken his heart, whether it's through things that we we did commission, you know Judas omission, Peter, you know I, we we miss the mark so often. I, I can tell you, the closer I get, the more I realize what a great Savior we have, who loves me still, for all of my contradictions, all of my inconsistency, all of my missing of the moments. I fall. I have fallen asleep on you, Lord. I have I have been sleeping when I should have been watchful. I, Lord, have been reckless and have damaged when I should have been careful to see. You what you were actually doing, but in my zeal and in my my restlessness, in my recklessness, I responded, I reacted, it was a reaction on his part. It's what he knew, but in that reaction, damage was done. People get hurt in our reactions. That is not your way. I too have been there, and I also have been there. I am capable, Lord of when when enough pressure is applied of denying. I mean, I'm telling you, it's there. It's possible. There's enough in us to grieve his heart. And you know what? He loves us still. And sometimes the hardest part of all is just being open to receiving. And we've been talking about it and singing about it. It's just receiving his love and letting him love us. And And by the way, do you know what? That's what's gonna be the hardest thing for Peter, forgiving himself and letting God love him. You can never use me. I'm no good. Powerful stuff. Some For some of us, you know what, it's just getting past the hurts of life. I think about this, and this has stuck with me too. Listen, where do most of our pains in life come from? You know where, I, at least from my perspective, it comes in our relationships, people. Conflict is often connected to people, and, and so much of it... It's it's real. It's the part. Of, it's the disruptions of life. Not everything, but a lot of it. A lot of our struggle is relational, and it it's things break down, things melt down. And I think, wow, you know, here is Jesus. He experiences every. He experienced betrayal at an extraordinary level. I mean, in that song we sang earlier. Only a friend can betray a friend. It wasn't an enemy who betrayed him. It was a friend. I mean, that was we forget at a human level how painful it was to be betrayed. You betrayed friend with a kiss. I mean, come on, come on. I have loved you, see? And, and, and we, we experience that. You know what, that, that does damage. A lot of us, just the hardest part is getting past it. I look at Jesus and I go, he just walks right through it. I mean, God help us sometimes just let go of our hurts to trust him, listen, to lay them at the cross and to forgive. And some of us, it's, just about, it's about forgiving and being forgiven is about forgiving again sometimes, again, just letting him do it. Lord, I pray that I would just let it go. I trust you. Um, Jesus knows what it's like to be hurt. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to have everyone who's there not show up for him. He knows he's felt it. He gets it. We We do not have a Savior who has not experienced our pain, and yet he shows us the way. What a great Savior. What an amazing Lord. What a God, not far away, un- unreachable, near, very near, very real, very true. Okay, let's pray. Lord, you know, we're so grateful for the, this, this tremendous gift that we've been given. And we're going to celebrate it. We really are. We're going to acknowledge the meaning of what you've done for us. Lord, you model what it was like to walk through the hardest things in life. And sometimes, Lord, again, it's just when we're hurt, it's so hard. I mean, some things... Just like your heart must have broke, Lord. There are things that break our heart. A lot of times just learning how to get past those things, how to grow, how to get better. Sometimes it's like Peter, just learning how to live in the forgiveness of God, to believe again that you can make something new out of what has been broken. And Lord, I just thank you that even our defeats don't have to be ending points. It's true. Judas flies off the edge, Lord. Peter almost does. But you know what? You have a history of taking us and teaching us some of the greatest lessons of life, the places of most deep suffering and hurt that sometimes your very real presence shows up in dramatic and amazing ways and we know your grace so Lord I just pray that as we close out the service and as we make our way to these coming weeks and even in this song Lord just, we just be aware of how present you are Lord that you understand our hurts and um, you understand our heart And so we ask for your blessing bless our, our time of giving may we honor you in it together and also this closing song may it be a, a fitting ending to what we've shared and I ask this in Jesus name amen